Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. The original idea was to organize a party that would promote the annual Pride exhibit at Casa Frila Art Gallery in Harlem. With Lawrence Rodriguez, Today's guest, Carmen Neely, built that original idea into what would later be called Harlem Pride. As the idea of a Harlem Pride celebration began to spread, they decided to expand it, especially after learning that there had never been a formal public celebration in Harlem. Since 2010, Harlem Pride has expanded to include community forums, workshops, networking events, and other community outreach activities. Neely designed the original logo and began wearing a t-shirt with the design at a popular poetry night. The Harlem Pride logo is a symbolic representation of the Adam Clayton Powell State Office Building, the tallest building in Harlem. The very first Harlem Pride Day celebration was held on Saturday, June 26, 2010, on the block of West 119th Street between Lenox and Fifth Avenues. Harlem Pride is always held during the last full weekend in June. Since 2010, Harlem Pride has expanded greatly. Originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, Neely graduated from Howard University with a BFA in theater and a minor in film production. She also holds a Master of Science in teaching from Fordham University. Although managing Harlem Pride keeps her very busy, Carmen is also an active member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated and other Harlem-based LGBTQ organizations. Carmen, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? How are you? How are you and your family and your and your immediate community holding up during these for lack of better times, stressful, challenging times? Uh Basically, for me, luckily, I'm okay. Um, You know, I am not wanting financially or, you know, and I have food coming in, so I'm blessed in that that sense. I I do get a little antsy being in the house so much, but um, my circumstances, uh, I'm just privileged to be okay. Like, I, I don't really have any unmet needs, and uh, my family the same. 
um, from North Carolina, so the majority mm-hmm. of my family members are there or either in Georgia, and they're all doing well. So uh, we're blessed. We're blessed. I haven't had any family members um, that I'm aware of that be um, COVID-19 positive, um, mm-hmm. but um, definitely some friends and community members here in New York and Harlem. And in terms of Harlem Pride, we, uh, of course, have had to cancel all of our in-person events, and we're working on a virtual Harlem Pride 2020 schedule. And that has kind of put us a little behind the eight ball in the sense that for Pride itself, we start planning right after the previous Pride ends. So our planning process starts in August. We give ourselves July off and uh, start planning from August on through to the next June. And um, for for COVID-19, we started noticing things were happening in February, and we started as we went into March thinking we're not sure what's going to happen. And then by the time we got really into March, toward the end of March, it was clear to us that regardless of whether or not the government or the city government um, closed the city down, that we would not want to be responsible for having 20-plus thousand people at an event and possibly infect who knows how many of them. And then the residual effects of, you know, that being viral and and, uh, infecting more people, we didn't want that responsibility. We felt that that would not have been um, prudent of us to carry forth. We waited until announcing that Harlem Pride 2020 in-person events would be canceled until it was announced by the city. And at that Mm -hmm. point, um, pretty much most of the prides in the city then announced that same day as well, um, mm-hmm. sort of to follow a, a protocol. Um, mm-hmm. So at this point, we are looking more so toward figuring out what we can do along the human services line as well as some something fun and uplifting. Uh, we see the need as twofold. Uh, we have community members that need food community members that still need gloves and masks and some essentials in terms of dealing with living in a COVID-19 world. Uh, So we have those concerns for our community members. And then, of course, you know, pride is fun and it's uplifting, so we're looking for how we can maintain the essence of pride and Harlem pride and what that means for our community and at the same time figure out how we can help everyone communicate and get information and how we can uh, try to see if we can be helpful in in getting people what they need in a very basic level in terms of food or shelter or masks or gloves or cleaning supplies, that sort of thing. Um, So we are looking into how we may be able to expand our programming and and, uh, focus on some of those needs. You know, it's funny that because I want to say it was like early in March. I was on a phone call, you know, talking to a lot of, of people from all over the place. And we were starting to see that it was coming, and someone was like, well, what are we going to do? And someone came on and said, well, you know, they it hadn't officially been announced. But they said, well, we're looking at it, and you know, D.C. Black Pride, we're, going, we're not going to do. I mean, we, we have to cancel it because of it. And at that moment, there was like 
it sort of like sunk into everybody, and there was a silence where it was sort of like, you know, wow. Because, like you said, you know, it's always fun and stuff, but for so many people, the first time that you really were felt like you're able to be free, to be out there, you know, to hang out, you know, maybe you have been like out, but to be out and, you know, party and be with your people, is that a pride? Did you, have you, when you knew you were going to have to do that, did you have to talk to people? Did you hear from people who talked about that personal sense of loss, of that, of that part of that coming out experience? either in their life or what they were looking for? Yes. Um, we consulted, you know, within our board, of course, and then we also spoke to a few community stakeholders, people that we go to for advice. And um, the general consensus was that absolutely, yes, we must do this for health uh, reasons, and, you know, that's the priority. But we all across the board, whether it was our board members or people we spoke to in the community and stakeholders, expressed that feeling feeling of loss, um, the the camaraderie, the gathering. Our event is largely uh, described by people like a homecoming, mm-hmm. um, a family barbecue, that sort of thing, where they get to see friends from Jersey, Pennsylvania, D.C., Connecticut, here in the city that they don't usually see until they come to Harlem Pride. You know, their lives are busy. Sometimes they don't get to hang out, but it's sort of a family reunion, homecoming type feel. And people said, you know, they understand, but they're going to miss that. I'm going to miss that as well. Um, Of course, being one of the organizers, I certainly look forward to it. And um, we had a big year coming off of World Pride. We had over 20,000 people, which was our biggest year ever. Mm-hmm. And going into our 11th year, which it's our 11th year, but we're looking at it as our second decade. So how are mm. we going to grow and expand our programming, our reach, and sort of um, our adolescence, so to speak? How are we going into those years? And we had quite a few plans for that beyond just our typical uh, pride activities. Um, And I don't want to say what they were because I'm sure, well, I hope we're able to do them tomorrow. Uh You you know, um, not tomorrow, but next year. (laughs) Uh But next year. But the loss of sort of the hope for the future in that sense, the... Uh, what's the word, uh, the excitement about these future plans and to see that now we have to put them all on hold, it, it's, a, it's a crushing blow to our spirit as organizers. So okay. we've had to deal with that. And I find personally we're in the middle of May, and at this point in time I would literally be running around like a chicken with her head cut off doing things, checking last-minute plans, preparations, making sure everything's in place. Um, Our first event was going to be May 27th, and then we had events throughout June all the way through to June 27th, which would be our big Harlem Pride 2020 Celebration Day, the festival on 12th Avenue. And um, so right now, of course, I'm busy, but not even half as busy as I would normally be. And I feel that loss in a sense of 
you know, you just know what you normally would be doing versus what you are doing. And and in one way, it's like, whew, I don't have all that stress. But in the other sense, it is definitely a, a great sense of sadness and melancholy because you mm-hmm. won't have that fun and that excitement and that coming together of community and that sense of family that I feel our event brings. Um, and, and, and is one of the major reasons why we attract so many people. So um, it's, it's been a hodgepodge of feelings and emotions, but the top, top one, of course, is that we must prioritize the health of the community. And so that's, that's the anchor of anything we may feel. Now, you mentioned briefly, you know, your family is from North Carolina. That's, excuse me, that's where you hail from. What brought you to New York? I know you have a BFA in theater and a minor in film production. Did, were you chasing that dream of, you know, I'm going to come to New York and make that great American film or make it a, a, my play on Broadway or perform on Broadway? Yes, actually, that is what brought me to New York. Um, once I graduated from Howard University, I was contemplating New York or L.A., and I'm more of a producer type. I uh, studied theater management. And um, so I was trying to figure out where would I really want to focus, be it theater or film. And I'd gone out to L.A. to visit UCLA and USC for their um, master's program. And I'd come to New York, and I'd checked out NYU and Columbia for their theater master's programs. And then I decided I really didn't want to be in school again so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided I liked New York better, just the feel of the city versus L.A. Nothing wrong with L.A. I just prefer New York. I'm very much an East Coast girl in that sense. And so I decided to move to New York. And um, my first job was at Manhattan Theater Club. And I started off in ticket sales, which is what I had done at Arena Stage Theater, which is in Washington, D.C., and then I moved up to um, general management assistant, which was really great. I got to work with the then general manager, Victoria Bailey, and um, I learned about contracting. I learned pretty much A through Z of managing a theater company, and I loved that position, but I did not make much money, as you could imagine. And uh-huh. being in New York and as expensive as it is, I had several actor friends who were temping at, on Wall Street. And basically back in that time, in the, in the mid to late 90s, anyone could pretty much go to a temp agency, go through the temp agency's training, and get a job placement pretty easily as long as they had a skill set. And the temp agency would train you. And I'm, I'm fairly organized and have a lot of administrative skills that, you know, I developed in the theater management program at Howard and, then more so at Manhattan Theater Club, and I type pretty well. And, you know, I've always been a typer. I helped my mom type her papers when she was in grad school and all this sort of thing. So I went, I did their typing test, passed the typing test, and did some other training, and I was sent to Goldman Sachs. And um, I knew what Wall Street was, but I wasn't really aware of Goldman Sachs' place in Wall Street in that whole world. I went, I interviewed, I was hired as a temp, and usually uh, it takes you about six months to a year to be hired permanently. 
after three months, I was hired permanently uh-huh. and um, became an actual full Goldman Sachs employee and not just a temp working at Goldman Sachs. And I worked there for several years and realized that while I enjoyed my time there, that I didn't come to New York for that. It was uh-huh. a money move. I learned quite a bit, um, and it, it definitely honed my administrative skills even further, and that's my forte, organization, administration, that sort of thing. And while I was there, I was able to create a Crucial Arts Productions, which was a performing and visual arts production company. Uh, it still exists, but it's not active. We just maintain the paperwork. And we were working on our actual uh, second, our, no, third, our third production. We'd done a play and a film short. And now we were doing another play when 9-11 hit. Ah. And um, we ended up, of course, canceling that production. Uh, Several people who were involved left the city. I myself left the city and went to Miami for a while. I just needed to get away a little bit. And Uh I was in Miami for less than a year, and I came back. And while in Miami, I... um, met some people who were looking for someone to teach. And I, my mother's a teacher, and so I kind of shied away from being a teacher. But throughout high school and college, I tutored people. You know, you have study groups, and a lot of times I would lead the study group. And um, when I was approached to teach theater in Miami, I started thinking about teaching as a career and what I might do with that. And... Um, I explored it a little bit in Miami and realized that I actually could do that. It was of interest. And I applied for teaching fellow positions in Washington, D.C., since I had quite a good network of people in D.C., as well as New York. And I got accepted into both programs, and I decided to go the New York route and come back to the city. And from there, um, I went to Fordham, and I got my master's of science in teaching with specializations in childhood education and special education. And um, so I'm certified childhood education uh, K through six and special education K through 12. Childhood is actually one through six, first grade through sixth grade. And then later I got my certification in uh, social studies seven through nine. And uh, I started teaching in 2003 and taught all the way up to December of 2018 because over that time, uh, uh, Harlem Pride was established in 2010, and we had grown quite a bit. And I decided that though I love teaching, I absolutely love teaching, that Harlem Pride was growing, and I wanted to switch lanes and, and work on Harlem Pride full time. So I was blessed to be able to basically do an early retirement and um, I've been working with Harlem Pride full-time since January 2019. So that's really just been all of last year. Coming into this year, you know, we had all these plans and things, and here comes COVID-19. So on a personal level, it's a little bit of a, a stormy off my uh, trajectory for how I had hoped to progress with Harlem Pride personally as well as Harlem Pride as an organization. But I think the resiliency of our people just kicks in. And, you, you, you know, you look at Plan B and Plan C, and then you regroup and you create a new Plan A. 
and go forward with that. And actually the time being home has afforded quite a bit of time to think and plan, and um, I feel like the organization as well as myself will be on pretty solid footing going forward. Um, There's just something exciting about change and transition that if you embrace it, it will sometimes help you see that there are even higher levels that you can uh, strive for than what you initially thought. So um, trying to embrace this time period uh-huh. Uh, in terms of personal growth and organizational growth and see where it takes us. Well, with that, we're going to take our first break, and then I want to come back and talk to you a little bit more about where you're at, where you're rooted in, Harlem. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I am talking with Carmen Neely. Carmen is one of the co-founders and president of Harlem Pride. You know, Carmen, you talked about, you know, how you looked at New York, you looked at L.A., but I'm wondering, did the history and the legacy of a Harlem Renaissance, did that sort of pull you towards New York, and did that sort of influence your choice of wanting to study theater and film production? Um, ooh, that answer is uh, like two or threefold. So I'll start with Harlem itself. Um, of course, in high school, you study the Harlem Renaissance, and my parents have uh, quite a large personal library, and they have lots of books and information about the Harlem Renaissance and books by... Um, people who were great in the Harlem Renaissance, you know, the Langston Hughes and Uh that sort of thing, the Zora Neale Hurston. And reading those books growing up and then, of course, going to Howard University and being in the theater department, you have a course called Blacks in the Arts, and the Harlem Renaissance is, is a major part of that. So Harlem definitely had an allure for me. However, when I first came to New York City, I first lived in Queens, then I lived in Brooklyn. Then I moved to Manhattan. And uh, I didn't live in Harlem initially. I lived north of Harlem in Washington Heights. Uh-huh. And then I eventually moved back to Brooklyn. And then I finally landed in Harlem. And I don't want to be anywhere else. I absolutely love Harlem. The history here, the feel here. You know, it's a great migration. It wasn't just to Chicago. It was to several cities in the north. Uh-huh. And this, to me, feels like uh, moving the south into an urban city metropolitan environment. 
I, you know, I, I still hear the my southern accent from others. Uh, they catch mine, my little twang that I have sometimes. It shows up when I'm laughing or, or excited or upset. You know, it comes out. And um, this definitely feels like uh, just a, a southern feel built upward with concrete, if you will. So I, I love Harlem and, and the rich history with the Harlem Renaissance, and that did definitely play a role in my wanting to come to New York. But um, initially, it, it was just a bright light, big city. I have to say it was that. But Harlem uh-huh. uh, being part of that is, is certainly icing on the cake. Um, and now with Harlem Pride and and building upon many of the key players in the Harlem Renaissance who were same gender loving LGBTQ people themselves, I just feel honored to, as I feel, hopefully be carrying on the legacy of what they built here in Harlem and being able to create an organization that speaks to that. Um, I'm not sure if everyone's aware, but not all Pride organizations across the board speak to one's cultural background, one's history, one's legacy. Um, And I think that's what makes Harlem Pride special. You know, it's just not uh, rainbows and glitter. We Uh talk about um, part of our events have to do with the history of Harlem, the history of same gender loving LGBTQ people in Harlem and talking about our roots and honoring our elders and, and things of that nature that are cultural and um, cultural to us as African-Americans and African-descendant people, and not just because we're SDL, LGBTQ, but with that infused into it. So I, I think it's a great dichotomy of, of being able to be here in Harlem and honor those things and uh, bring it forward because we're, we're not just one monolithic thing. And to be able to mix all of that in and pay homage to it, I think, is really a great opportunity. Yeah, you know, I mean, I often tell people, they said, if you could come back and, and time away, but I would want to, as a same gender loving African American woman, I would like to, you know, if I could go back in time to Harlem Renaissance. And often when you talk to people, you know, where, like you said, we aren't monolithic, and the LGBTQ experience as African Americans is different. Our prides are different. Often that we are bringing in that historical perspective, you know, that and that's the fact that we have always been here, you know, like because you often have people in our our very own community who will say, "Well, I didn't know anybody who was queer," you know. I don't know any gay people. You know, black black people aren't gay. Yes, we are, and we've been here, and we've been here all along, and we're doing that. With, as you started to build, okay, what made you decide, and how did the process come about co-founding a Harlem Pride? Well, okay, so I love to tell this story. So... Uh, when I moved to Harlem, Crucial Arts came with me. And uh, at this point, we were only doing film screenings, but we were doing film screenings focused on the African-American experience. And um, we started off 
at the Dwyer Cultural Center. It had just opened, and we were one of the first uh, curated groups to come in outside of the producers who opened the center themselves. Their programs were there. So Crucial Arts Film um, Series was one of the first outside uh, productions going on. And we were there for a good season. We were very successful. And uh, unfortunately, they had to raise our rental fees, and it was a little uh-huh. out of our reach because we were not trying to, you know, make a whole lot of money with this. We wanted to have the screenings. We provided food and beverage for free. Uh, people gave us a donation or they didn't. We just wanted to have a place where people could come. And often we were able to get the filmmakers who a lot live in New York City to come and do a talk back about the process of making the film, et cetera. And when the dryer, unfortunately, you know, we understand they have bills to pay. They had to raise our rent. We looked for another venue, and we found that at Casa Frila Gallery on West 119th Street between Lenox and Fifth Avenue. And there, in the person of Lawrence Rodriguez, who is the other co-founder, he and I began to work together um, with his project. He has an art gallery there. That's what Casa Frila is. It's an art gallery in a brownstone. And I was doing the film screening. And over time, of course, we realized, hey, um, you're gay and I'm a lesbian, a same gender loving person. So why don't we work together and, and help each other? So on weekends, I would go over to Casa Frila and write press releases and uh, work on the website. And Lawrence would do the same. And whatever we needed for each other's organizations, we just helped each other out. And we had a wonderful, wonderful friendship. So uh, Lawrence would typically do a LGBTQ-themed art exhibit for Pride. And the particular art exhibit for 2010 uh, was erotic uh, sort of phallic symbols and things of that nature. And it was uh, more or less illustrations. Um, not sculpture or paintings, but these sort of really, really nice illustrations. And he was trying to figure out how he might market the opening of the exhibit. And I said, you know what, why don't we throw a house party? It'll be June, it's Pride Month, and uh, instead of the typical sort of wine and cheese reception, why don't we do a house party? And he liked the idea, and so we, we started putting the house party together, and we just called it sort of like this Harlem Pride thing. We, we just had this working name, and we just, between the two of us, were calling it Harlem Pride. And um, at the time, I was dating someone who was looking for T-shirts for a group that she worked with, and I do a little bit of graphic design and whatnot. So I had been working on a logo for the promotion of this, and I asked her would she get a T-shirt done up, and she did. And we were also going to uh, erotic poetry night over at Billy's Black. It's now B2 Harlem uh, with Adrian Ferguson, uh, the owner. And I was wearing a T-shirt, a little T-shirt with a design on it. And people would say, Harlem Pride, what's that? And I'm like, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be an art exhibit. <laughs> it's going to be in June. Uh, yeah, Harlem Pride. So I decided I was going to wear the T-shirt every time we went to the poetry night, which was weekly, and people kept asking, Harlem Pride, Harlem Pride, what's that? So I, I went back to Lawrence, and I said, Lawrence, because he's been living in Harlem much longer than I had. I'd only been in Harlem since uh, summer of 08 or 09, 
And um, he said, well, as far as he knew, there was no actual organized event. But, of course, several people had little parties or gatherings in their homes, but nothing organized. So we decided, you know what, why don't we make this a little bit more expansive and make a whole day of it, not just maybe a two- or three-hour house party. Let's see if we could just make a whole day of it and just keep calling it Harlem Pride. And he's like, okay. So his partner uh, was on the Block Association, and it just so happened that they had a block party permit for the last weekend in June. And that is why our event is always the last week in June, uh-huh. because that's how it started. Some people thought that we were trying to compete with the city's Pride March, which is that last Sunday in June of the full weekend. And we were like, no, it's just that the permit that we first had was for that weekend, and we honor that as part of our history. So from there, uh, we had the date set. We started inviting people for the art gallery exhibit. And once we became involved with the block party, then we thought, well, why don't we get some sponsors? You know, because the block party had, uh, I mean, the block association had a scholarship fund. And usually they sell hot dogs and sodas during the black block party to raise money. But we thought, well, if we make it a larger event and more people come, then you'll raise more money for the scholarship. Again, we were still focused on the art exhibit itself and getting people to come through for that. So uh, it's sort of like the people we knew knew people and, and they knew people. So we ended up putting together a, a, a group to help us do the event, and that group eventually became our first board of directors. But we didn't incorporate or anything until after the actual first Harlem Pride. So long story shorter, because it's hard to make it absolutely short, we <laughs> ended up <laughs> deciding to sell tables. So then, uh-huh. you know, people from the community that sold uh, flags or books or jewelry, uh, what have you, they bought tables. And I think our first tables were like 20 or $40, something really inexpensive. And we ended up having about 15 to 20 people come in as table vendors. And from there, the conversation grew. We got some sponsors. We had uh, CNBC and Sage Harlem. And um, Uh Sage Harlem was doing some awards, so they decided to do it during that event. So they were able to bring some politicians. We had then uh, city council member Perkins came and um, helped present the awards with Sage. And we uh, pulled in um, a guy named Anthony, who uh, Anthony Childress, who would normally do a a drag queen uh, presentation to raise funds for his scholarship program. So he brought that whole production and provided the entertainment. We also had Antoine Craigwell, who was starting off with his uh, Depressed Gay Black Men uh, series, and he had just released a film, and we had that in the discussion. So we had a youth program. We had a program about mental health. We had entertainment, we had tables, we had sponsors. All of that sparked from the idea of promoting Lawrence's um, art gallery exhibit. Uh-huh. Uh, so we expected uh, maybe we'll get, you know, 50, 30-some people, all our <laughs> friends coming through collectively. Uh, uh-huh. We had about seven people working on the initial board and then about another five people working on what we uh, eventually call the advisory board, just helping out as volunteers. 
And uh, the advisory board got a group of actual volunteers for us, and we had uh, T-shirts made up for them. We called them ambassadors and things of that nature. So as everything came together on that day, we were amazed. We had no idea Uh of the niche that we had tapped into. We didn't Uh even think to count the people, but the newspaper articles that came out, uh, we had something in the Post, the Daily News, and the New York Times, and I forget which one said what. But it started at 2,000 people, another paper said 2,500, and another said 3,000, which was way beyond anything. We would have been uh-huh. happy if only 100 people came. So I happened to see a group of elders crying. They were, they were literally in tears, and I thought, oh, my God, because one of our concerns was would we have any kind of um, negative backlash from the community, Will we have any discrimination or hate crime happen during the event? So I rushed over, and, you know, of course, we were working with the local precinct, and we had some plainclothes police officers there, and I thought, oh, my God, we're going to have a situation. Let me see what happens. I go over to them and said, is everything okay? I see you all are crying. They just said, everything is fine. Everything is fine. They told me, I think it was little sis, little sister. Everything is fine. We are just so happy to see that something like this has happened in Harlem. We would have never wow. thought uh-huh. an out, proud, welcoming, family-oriented, because there were kids there. You know, all of our events, unless it's at a bar, of course, are family-oriented. You could bring your 2-year-old and your 80-something-year-old, and they all find something they can do at our event. Um, and they were crying out of joy. And I started uh-huh. tearing up, too. I just was like, oh, my goodness. And when that was over that day and we had our wrap-up meeting and wrapping up the finances, and we actually broke even. Uh-huh. Every, everyone had put in, everyone except one person, I won't say their name, had put in money to get the event going. I think the budget was $5,000, and we'd all just kind of put in, and then we also had a, a sponsorship come in at, at the end. So we were all able to get our money back, and I think we had like $1,000 to work with going into the next uh, year. But we decided then and there that we would go ahead and incorporate as a not-for-profit and, and try to keep it going. And we hadn't realized how much of a need and desire there was uh-huh. in the community for it. And we thought, okay, well, it's Harlem. What are our parameters? We said, well, we're going to deal with Harlem, river to river, 110th to 160th. And so, you know, some people argue 160 is 156th, but we're going with 160th because back in the day, that's where the boundaries were. We're not going to let the gentrifiers tell us differently. Uh-huh. Um, so that, that's how we got started. And from there, we've just grown. Initially, we had uh, three events. There would be a launch party, which would be like a reception fundraiser, um, then there would be the the big Saturday, and it started off as a block party. Eventually, it was a park. Now we're on a 12th Avenue. And then a family day event. Because a lot of people, you know, as big as the city's march is, not everybody wants to go down and be in that big crowd. Uh-huh. You know, a lot of organizations will do it, and a lot of people, if they can be on an organization float, they'll go participate. But we found that not everybody wants to go all the way downtown for that. And they can watch it on um, TV. At, at, now they can watch it on TV. I don't think it was always televised. But um, the family day, uh, the first 
two family days were at the Harlem Lanes. So families and everybody would come together and we would get about five lanes just to ourselves and everybody uh-huh. would bowl and we had uh, sponsors with the food. We had donuts one year. Another year we had little mini sandwiches and water and soda and things of that nature. And we just had a ball and it started off with those three events. And then as we grew, I'm, I'm trying to think, I don't have the timeline in front of me, but around 2013, we expanded into a full week, and uh, we had a youth program added to that and a film night added to that. And then, of course, we still had our launch party, um, and we had our full day Saturday in the park. Um, And then after that, we expanded to doing things outside of just Pride Month. We had community forums that we did monthly at County Cullen, Harlem Renaissance County Cullen uh, Library. And we presented other um, same-gender-loving LGBTQ organizations and what they were doing. And we like to feel as though we were a catalyst. And we're not going to take credit for their work, but we feel that we were a catalyst in helping these organizations be more visible and um, so that people were more aware. So we would invite them to come and speak in front of our uh, constituents and discuss their programs and services. And that also helped us get more tables as our event grew. We're, we're up to like 100-plus tables at our event at this point. And also out of that grew uh, a little bit of contention. Our second year in 2011, we moved to Marcus Garvey Park, and there are quite a few churches around the park. And I think that they heard a Harlem Pride celebration was going to come through and assumed that it would be more like the stereotypical pride celebration with, and nothing's wrong with this, you know, I'm not, uh-huh. I'm not uh-huh. going to yuck anybody's yum. And I, I'm not saying anything is better or worse, but ours is a family-oriented event. Uh-huh. And they felt that they might see, you know, in their heads, nudity or, or something along those lines. And I think there's a time and place for all of that. It just so happens our event is family-oriented. And there was some backlash, and that backlash ended up in the newspapers, and we ended up having to learn how to handle media and how to do interviews, and it was a definite growing experience. I ended up on Pix 11 morning news doing an interview, and it was also the same time frame that New York was working on marriage equality, which we got that year, and it was Uh announced during our launch party. So that was our second year was definitely pivotal for us. And we've just been growing every since. Now our pride celebrations include some sort of a launch party. We instituted the Legacy of Pride Awards for community members who are doing great things. And we also have a transgender, it started off as a transgender appreciation night. Now it's transgender gender nonconforming, non-binary, because as we grow, we are learning uh-huh. and being more inclusive and uh, trying to honor all the letters of the L, the G, the B, the T, the Q, et cetera. And um, you know, so those, mm-hmm. You know, Carmen, you know, I think that's a very important point because, you know, even here, like we have Hotter Than July and then there's also Michigan Pride. And there is that need for communities of color, black and brown folks, how we do it is different 
And there's nothing wrong with, you know, having your big gay pride and throwing confetti and nudity and tutus. There's nothing wrong with that. And But sometimes I can understand, too, that when, as communities of color, if we participate in that, sometimes we get lost in this overall celebration. And then there's also that perception, even though we know we have been here and we have been neighbors, we have been in church choirs, we have been in our communities all along, and all of our people, all of our church, they know us. But there's a, it's that important to show, like you said, this is a family event, that we are. We are your neighbors. We're your family members. So, I mean, I can see how important it is and how you're helping break down those barriers and also reminding people by, by having there and standing up and saying, no, look, we're doing family events that we've been there. We are part of your community. And we didn't give away our black card because we are staying gender loving. Right, right, exactly. You know, um, and, and then we have thrown some events that cater to that that crowd, but it's just not our big celebration day. You know, uh, it'll, we've also over the years incorporated a closing party, and uh, that has worked for us at times. Hasn't worked for us at times. We collaborated on a on a closing party on a cruise ship. Um, you know, like just it, it cruises up and down New York Harbor area. Um, so we've had different different activities and things that we do, and it kind of goes by the feel of what the community wants from year to year. Um, and also a group of elders put together um, a Circle of Life commemoration event that we incorporated as part of our events for the month that that memorialized people we lost in the community over the past mm-hmm. year because we don't often, we aren't often celebrated for the lives we lived when it comes to family members deciding after we've passed how we're going to be buried or where we're going to be buried, what we'll be wearing when we're buried, whether we're going to be cremated and things of that nature. Um, so we decided, you know, these people are part of our community and we will memorialize them as they lived, as they loved, as they laughed, and as we enjoyed them um, in, their, in their life and as we will remember them in their death. And um, that event, while not produced by us, we definitely volunteered with uh, helping it uh, get produced and also put it as part of our list of activities for people to see uh, and participate in. And then most recently, we've teamed up with the Apollo. We have a historian on our uh-huh. board, and uh, he has done quite a few pieces on Langston Hughes and uh, uh, music and things of that nature and how historically saying gender-loving LGBTQ people were involved in those things and parts of Harlem's history, and those have been well-received as well. Uh, we usually team up with Apollo's education department for those events. And um, over the years, we just have expanded, and we're really proud of what we've done, and, and then there's so much more to do. Our, uh, we actually changed our mission statement last year. Our new mission statement is to empower Harlem's SGL LGBT community, which includes family, friends, and allies, to improve its physical, mental, and economic health and wellness. 
So we'll be branching out in terms of doing uh, personal finance. We have done some of that already with our partner, TD Bank, and uh, we want to move into providing some classes for entrepreneurship. And then when it comes to uh, physical and mental health, we focus on preventative measures, things such as mindfulness, meditation, uh, fitness, uh, nutrition, things of that nature. And uh, so we just want to continue to expand and uh, serve the community. Now, you know, on your webpage, right under the mission statement, you made a statement about using the term same gender loving. Why did you feel that it was important to put that right there between the mission and the vision statement? Uh, Well, we felt it was important because, First of all, same gender loving as a term, what it says is we adopted it to be inclusive of the identities of members of our Harlem community. It is a term coined for African-American youth by activist Cleo Monago and is a description for homosexuals and bisexuals, particularly in the African-American community. It emerged in the early 1990s as a culturally affirming african As I was saying, it emerged in the early 1990s as a culturally affirming African-American, homosexual, bisexual identity. Um, so for us, that, that's pretty much where it is. We want it to be inclusive of African-Americans, including myself and other board members, but not all of our board members identify as same gender loving. Uh, but we wanted to honor that in that um, as we, we do surveys every year for our events to see how people feel about what we're doing, what we can improve, and initially, we just had LGBT, and people were, and we wrote other, and people, so many people wrote same gender loving. So we mm-hmm. added same gender loving, and um, and in terms of its cultural significance, I think it's important that we have it in our in our wording, and we put it first. We didn't say LGBTQ and then same gender loving. We put same gender loving first, and, and that's to put emphasis on the fact that we support its uh, cultural significance. Now, um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was uh, your co-founder is Latinx, and often Mm -hmm. people, I mean, you know, we have Afro-Latino people, and I know that there are some people who, you know, and I've talked to some people who are LGBTQ, who are either of Caribbean Caribbean ancestry, who are Afro-Latino, and they said, but sometimes, like, where do we fit in? But you started with, you know, um, someone who was of a different culture. How important is it to, um, you know, with Lawrence Rodriguez, how important is it to you that you represent everyone who's in Harlem? One of the things that I love about New York and about Harlem is that I can be around brown and black people who are maybe speaking other languages, but I feel that sense of, you know, we are all communities. Do you try to focus on that, bring that together? Yes, um, because quite often, as is evidence in our conversation so far, we're asked about the African-American experience, the identity, same-gender loving, all of that, but our name is Harlem Pride, which means uh-huh. for us, our focus is Harlem. So if you live in Harlem, 
we focus on bringing activities and things of that nature to you. But with that being said, we are definitely a black people of color organization. So we honor that history. We honor that foundation. Um, and, and Latinx or Latino, a lot, a lot of people tell me they still prefer Latino to Latinx. So whichever one, whoever's listening prefers, Latino or Latinx, we definitely encourage um, participation. And uh, Lawrence, who is not with us anymore, he decided he wanted to continue to focus on the art gallery because, of course, nobody knew that that block party was going to end up being an annual celebration if we initially started off as it to be a one-time event. And so as it grew, I think about the third year, Lawrence was like, you know, guys, this is getting a little bit much, and I, I really want to focus on my art gallery. So he decided to leave the organization. But Harlem Pride is welcoming. If you look through our um, photos from year to year, you'll see a hodgepodge of everyone. But largely our main demographic is people of the African diaspora, African Americans, uh, Afro-Latinos. They're, they're there as well. Um, Caribbean, all of it's represented because represented, it's all here in Harlem. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been involved with, with things and, and that have gone on like for years. Do you ever look back and think back about, you know, that first idea, you with your little T-shirt, and I'm going to wear my T-shirt, and then now you look at, at what this is and go, like, wow, or have someone come up to you and say, I remember that first one. How does that, as you reflect back on it, what have you seen, what makes you proudest of how this has grown? Oh, wow. There, that, that definitely happens, and I still have that T-shirt. It is, like, put away in a safe space, and I even said that when I pass, I want to be buried in that T-shirt because that's the only one that exists. We changed the logo from that initial, uh, you know, we tightened up the, the design. So that initial one uh-huh. is very much like the first iteration of the Harlem Pride logo. And uh, so none of the other T-shirts look like that T-shirt. It, it, you, it's definitely a true throwback T-shirt. And um, so to answer your question, though, it, it just makes me have this real sense of pride and satisfaction um, because none of us that are involved in it were sitting around thinking, let's start a pride organization. Harlem, pride, Harlem needs it, and we need to do this. That's not how it got started at all. It, it really got started out of the circumstance and us realizing that there was a need. But, you know, creating this organization was not the focus of it being created. And so when I look back and I feel the others that are involved, when, when they look back, it is just with utter amazement, uh, a, a feeling of being blessed, uh, uh, certainly a sense of pride and satisfaction and awe because I still sometimes look at this and say, wow, look at all yeah. these people, you know, and, and then as we began to work with city agencies that provide services and things of that nature, 
we really began to see it in, in sort of a different light outside of it's a day for people to come out and have fun. It's that, but it's also a day for people to come out and get tested for HIV. It's also a day for people to come out and find out about housing opportunities. It's also a day for people to get information about jobs, job training, schools, anything. Uh, uh, our event is one of the largest events for black people of color, Latinos, Latinx, and a lot of organizations or city agencies and corporations need that target demographic. So we have started having having tables from people who are selling jewelry and skincare products and T-shirts and bags and books and what have you to people that are, are selling Caribbean food as, as food vendors, um, uh, Spanish food as food vendors. Uh, I'm trying to think what else we have. Soul food for sure, you know, the fried fish and the french fries for, as food vendors. So you have this smorgasbord of, of a food menu to choose from. You also have a city agencies, and you can learn about, oh, you know what? I didn't know I could go here and get this service or be a part of this program. Um, you also have uh, resources for people who are trying to start businesses. You have uh, banks that are out there giving you their information on how to open an account, investment strategies and things of that nature, because one of our focuses is definitely entrepreneurship and personal finance. So we have those people out. We've had Google out with their um, Google Lens, those glasses that, that you can do all kinds of things with virtual reality. So we've uh -huh. had technology companies come out. So not only is it about having a day of fun and, and, and pride and uh, reaching back to our historical legacies, but it's also about looking forward to getting some help that you may need or finding out about a, a new innovation or collaborating and networking with like-minded people. So it has become something larger than anything we ever imagined from that first year. And to look back on that and look forward as to what it will become and continue to grow into is just absolutely amazing. And in, in the sense of feeling blessed to be used, in, in my opinion, by God to help bring this about, is it's not uh, sort of like an ego, like look at what we did, but look at what we were blessed to be a part of. Um, look at what we were blessed to be able to use our talents to put together. Um, you know, look at what we have been able to help the community with. And in light of COVID, you know, yes, we're disappointed that the events won't go on as usual, but our focus really has been how can we retool what we usually do and figure out what the community needs and help provide those needs. And we're a small organization. Um, we, we have a tremendous cadre of volunteers that help us out in June, but the day-to-day -day is really about five, six people at this point. Um, Hold on so, a minute, and let's, I want to talk about Harlem Pride 2020 and beyond. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk about that, okay? Okay.
Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on collections by Michelle Brown. You were talking about that. And, you know, Harlem Pride is community. And community is, is, is really changing. It's being impacted by COVID-19. Um, I know Harlem, we have new people who are coming in and people are concerned about gentrification. But Harlem Pride is about community. And not, I know you start planning for, you start planning for 2020 probably before 2019 was done, you know, how are those plans impacted by all of these things that are happening? And how are you going, I mean, Harlem Pride is like, like you said, it's like a, a family reunion. It's a day when, when folks come together where one might feasibly say with social distancing, uh, quarantine, COVID-19, that we really need to come together and feel a part of community but we can't do that. How, what are your thoughts? How has it impacted the program and how are you moving forward? Well, what we're doing is looking at ways to transition from the in-person into the virtual and maintain as much of that community sense, family feel as possible. And it's definitely challenging to do that. and it has not been something that we've been able to do at the drop of a dime, so to speak. Um, we definitely plan on having a virtual Harlem Pride 2020, and we're in the process of finalizing some details as we speak, actually, um, to, to, before announcing everything. But we're trying to figure out a way of bringing that festival feel of community and communication and networking online to our website. So we're working on that. And we're also, uh, we were in the process of doing a sort of performance uh, talent show similar to American Idol. We've done one installation of that before uh, we canceled on March 11th, we were, before we were canceled. And that's called Show Out. So we're working on moving Show Out to a, a digital virtual presence, and uh, we're going to do some film presentations, and uh, we're going to do two of them. We have decided upon one, and we're working on finalizing the second one. So we have something put together, and outside of those activities, we're also working on making sure the community knows where they can go to get masks, where they can go to get resources, supplies, And um, as information comes out, we created a COVID-19 area on our website for just resource information so that our constituents can visit the site and have sort of a consolidated place. So we started with the CDC, Center for Disease Control, WHO, the World Health Organization, information from those sites, 
and it links back to where they update their information. And then we took it to uh, our New York State information, New York City information, and by borough information. And then just general help from our partners and other community members for mental health, wellness, um, things, and uh, financial information. And some of the services are free. So we definitely put those up so that the community could take advantage of it and people to go to to ask about stimulus money and the PPP, the PPE, excuse me, loans. No, this is the PPP for yeah, the, right. for the um, loans. And then PPE for the uh, equipment and the safety things for essential workers. So we've put that information resource on our website and uh, – Going forward, I feel like we'll be able to expand upon that. Um, but it did take us a moment to regroup personally because it, it totally affected how we live our day-to-day as, as just people dealing with COVID. And then to get together, because um, initially we didn't think the quarantine was going to last this long. So we began to act pretty much around the beginning of April. It took us about two weeks to realize, hey, uh, we know we're not going to do pride, but this quarantine is actually going to last a bit longer, and we really need to work from home. We thought we might just have a week or two at home, you know, how they talked about the 14 days initially. Uh And we thought then there might be some reason for us to be able to go back into the office. And as, you know, we kept up with details and things of that nature, we realized, oh, that's not going to happen. So let's start planning what we can do as a response. And so we're, you know, a month and a half into that, and then that took reaching out to people and people getting back to us. And, of course, things are slower because of COVID, and, and no one's really in whatever their normal environment is, whether even if they're working from home, nobody's really working in the way that they were before. So things have taken, uh, timelines have been a little bit more expanded than usual. But we're catching up. Uh-huh. And uh, well, we you know now, we're... But the impact, has it impacted the organization? You know, like it's like sponsors. I know that you said that you have a great group of volunteers. How are you keeping your volunteers engaged? What about sponsorships? And those people who may be committed to doing a table or whatever, and how are you helping them not only, you know, get that message out, but how are you doing, how has it impacted you? Because I know some of the stuff you have to spend before the day of. You just don't running around there with your checkbook the day of. You've done this, you set this up. How How is this impacting you that way, and how are you regrouping? Well, well basically, because we're not doing the in-person event, which is the, you know, uh, most of our sponsors look to us for the numbers of people that we bring together and who will see their sponsorship, and their sponsorship will be visible in that way. So once we got our plans together for a virtual Harlem Pride, we have then sent that information to sponsors. Um, We have had a few federal sponsors who their budgets were cut, and funds, you know, uh, sent over to deal with COVID expenses. And so they let us know that, unfortunately, they wouldn't be able to sponsor our pride in any shape, form, or fashion because they no longer had budget funds for it. So it's definitely impacted our bottom line. We will 
definitely not get anywhere near the sponsorship funds that we typically get. Um, even some of the grants that we write have asked us to rewrite them and say what we will do in response to COVID and how we're still maintain being able to handle some of our programs and services. So a, a lot of time has been uh, spent answering those requests, which is, which is great that they're looking at how we can actually continue in light of COVID. And um, in terms of our volunteers, right now, honestly, there's not that much that we can ask of them other than, you know, how they're doing. We have done a check-in and just try to see how people are doing and what their needs are um, in conjunction with another organization called the Black and Latino LGBTQ Coalition. Mm-hmm. And I'm co-chair of that organization. Uh, that organization put out a survey that we shared um, on our, in our email and social media to kind of just generally figure out what the needs are in the uh, overall community. And so we're working with other organizations in that sense. But our volunteers are typically on-the-ground volunteers. Uh, at the actual event and during the big day of the Celebration Day Festival. So as we get um, our virtual things together, there is honestly not as much for them to do, but we're hoping that they will support, uh, you know, the Zooms and log in and that nature, and we're keeping in touch with them because who knows what next year will look like. We don't know if we'll be able to have pride the usual way next year either. There still may be social distancing um, protocols in place, and we might not be able to have, you know, thousands of people gather at one one point in time. So we're taking it as it comes, but in terms of its impact, yes, we are definitely not getting the funding we're used to getting. Luckily, our treasurer, who is Michael Ihaj, is very good with our books. And at the moment, we think we will survive financially. We're not going to fall off the face of the earth because we can't pay bills and that sort of thing. But the money that we would normally have to go forward is definitely diminished. And so we're trying to be as creative as we can with the understanding, too, that our our usual uh, individual sponsors may not have the same funds that they normally would have to donate. You know, not everybody's individual you know, everyone has been impacted financially to some degree. You know, it might not be to the degree that they can't eat or can't pay bills, but one would want to be prudent in this time because we don't know what's going to happen. So where they might give a, a, a five-figure donation, maybe they'll give a, a three-figure donation, or, or if they were going to give a four-figure donation, maybe they'll give a two-figure donation. We don't know uh-huh. how that has really impacted and won't know until after the full Pride season is over and we actually get up to speed with our campaign, which is almost done. And we're, we're looking to launch everything um, as of June 1st. So we still have a few more days to finalize some details and get the graphics done and things of that nature. So it has definitely put us behind the eight ball in terms of planning because, like I said, we start planning in August for the next year, and we had everything set and done, and we're ready just to do the graphics, which is one of the last things we have to do before promoting Pride, and this is back in March. 
And we usually want to be ready to go with the graphic no later than April 1st and have all of April and May to really hype things up for June. But that didn't happen. Those plans, we can't go through with them. So then we had the sort of two weeks of what's going on, what's happening, we're in the house, what are we doing? Oh, yes, Pride is definitely canceled. And that brings us into April, and now we're in the middle of May. We're just really trying to flip the script 360 degrees and come up with alternatives and the technology to do them because you know, we can't meet them. Mm-hmm. You know, for you personally, I mean, it, you know, I can see that this is probably like a bittersweet moment. It's been like 10 years, but isn't it sort of like a challenge to you to get those creative juices going, like from – because, like, in 2010, you're thinking, like, block party, how we're going to do it. And now, again, it's, it almost makes you, like, refocus on where you were then and how you're going to do that as we move into this new reality. I think, for me personally, I look at it more as a Rubik's Cube. Somebody threw me one that was all jumbled up, and now i got to figure out how to get all the colors back together. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So that that's that's how I would make it, you know, the type of analogy I would make. It, it's kind of fun in a way to dip back into those creative juices and say, okay, what can we do? What uh, serves the community on, on two ends? Because here in the city there are quite a few prides. There's the city's big pride. There's the Queen's pride, a Brooklyn pride. Um, Several smaller prides in Brooklyn, Bushwick Pride comes to mind. Um, There's there's the Bronx Pride celebration. There's Harlem Pride. Um, All of us are having to retool in some shape, form, or fashion, and all of us have different budget levels. So the cost of technology is one way in which it's a constraint. Finances are always a constraint where one organization may be able to get an empty studio with three cameras and pay a celebrity to come through and do a performance, and that would be a great draw. Another organization might not be able to afford the cameras, let alone the celebrity's fee. So it has been definitely a challenge in coming up with something that we think is a draw, Uh something that people will actually tune into that won't be the same old zoom, 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 because at this point, almost everybody is all zoomed out. What is it about <laughs> our event? Right? You know, know everybody's going to zoom for that. this, that, or the other. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what is it about our Zoom link and our attached event that's going to make people click on that versus something else? And what's going to make them stay once they click? I myself have clicked on to this, that, or the other that was sort of an event type thing and not a meeting but a presentation or an event only to say, wow, okay, this is not quite what I thought it was and and leave the meeting um, because it didn't hold my attention or or because it, it wasn't quite what I anticipated being. So it's definitely a challenge to translate those in-person events and the feel of that and the energy of that and the excitement around that onto um, an online existence where you don't have the physical energy. And how do you 
translate that sense of community and family via a computer screen or a cell phone screen or whatever your device is. Uh-huh. That is definitely a challenge. So when I say it, it feels like somebody scrambled up a Rubik's Cube and said, here, get this done and get it done by such and such deadline, that's how it feels. And, you know, in one moment you're going to have utter frustration, and another moment you're going to be excited because at least you got two or three of the colors together, and then but you got to mess up some of those colors. We know how Rubik's <laughs> Cubes work to get uh-huh. the other colors. So so it, it's been an up and down, an ebb and flow, but overall it's been a, um, I'm not going to say a, a welcomed joy to have to do it, but it definitely is like reaching back into those creative juices and in that sense of creating something new and embracing the transition that I talked about earlier and letting that need for transition and change hope you find an even higher level than what you were thinking of before, and in that way, you definitely embrace it because it is giving us ideas that we might not have the time or the resources to do this year, but we can certainly institute it when we have more time to plan and uh, hopefully the finances to put it together properly for some virtual activities down the line. Mm-hmm. Wow. So um, we're coming into the home stretch here. So, what would you what you would like to tell to people who are feeling that sort of like that little like ground, like oh yeah, but it's not going to be the same, or even not even beyond that, who are feeling that sense of loss? What would you say to them about you know um, pride? You know, this year, a Harlem pride this year, that sense of community and help them make it through till next year. And also, I mean, I'm personally going to make a contribution because I think that, you know, hey, if you can do it, you know, you should do it to help, to keep it so that you can come back in whatever way you'll be next year. So how do people find out about Harlem Pride? And what would you, as one of the co-parents from way back in the day, say to our community about just hanging in there and making it together? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you. I certainly appreciate your contribution. And what I would say to the community is that we are in this together. This year's theme was literally going to be we live. And we're going to change that and announce that in, a, in a, hopefully in a few days, next week sometime. But I, I Definitely, we are surviving. We are getting through this, and it's not lost on us that that pride is one thing, and I acknowledge the feeling that it won't be the same because that's just a matter of fact. It will not be the same, but the love is there, the community is there, the need is there, and it's not lost on us that some people are out there hungry while we're trying to figure out what's going to make people laugh and feel joy. Some people don't know how they're going to pay their rent while we're trying to figure out, again, how to, how to uplift spirits. So we're really working on how can we encompass all of that together? How can we bring resources to the community? How can we bring information to the community and networking so that the community members know where to go to get things? And how can we lift spirits? And how can we hold on to the essence of what pride means? And for us, that, that boils down to family. 
we are a family, and the same way you got family members that are in need and others that are not, we need to bridge that gap and make sure everybody can cross the River Jordan, so to speak, together. Mm. Mm. Wow. That is beautiful. Um, Carmen, I want to thank you for your time. Um, I don't know what that was. I look forward to the day when we can be back in Harlem Pride in whatever way it's going to be. And I thank you for – I mean, you do – we didn't even get into all the things that you do in the community, and visibility matters. And I thank you for being an out-proud, same-gender-loving woman. I mean, you are really making a difference there in Harlem, and because of that, in our community. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your time today. And, you know, I get to New York pretty regularly, and I always tell people, you know, I've got to catch up with people. You are one of the people who now are on my list who I've got to catch up with. I would love to. I would love to. And and also just for anyone who is interested in donating, I, I just want to provide that information, if I may. Oh, definitely. Okay, well, they can go on our website, which is harlempride.org, and click on the Donate button. It's a menu item in the top right. Or if you have cash app, you can do dollar sign Harlem Pride. Or if you want to text, you can text HPRIDE, is just H-P-R-I-D-E, to 44321. Okay. Do you want to say that one more time? Yes. Uh, three ways here that you can donate. You can go to our website, which is harlempride.org, and go to the Donate button, which is in the top right side of our website's homepage, and that will take you to the donation page. If you use Cash App, you can Cash App to dollar sign Harlem Pride, just all one word. Or if you'd like to text to donate, you can text H Pride H P R I D E to four four three two one. Okay, and you know, and really, I mean, if you can, I think that anyone who can, those of us who can, should step up, and those of us who are in need know that this is there for you. You know, yes, I, I mean, and that's it. You know, so. Again, Carmen, thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of this beautiful, I guess, the still spring day. Yes, thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. And certainly when you come to New York, I'd love to grab lunch or dinner and hang out. I want to thank my guest, one of the co-founders of Harlem Pride, Carmen Neely. In 2010, Harlem Pride's co-founder saw an opportunity to celebrate not just our same gender-loving LGBTQ community, but its role and contributions to Harlem's rich history. Since then, Harlem Pride has expanded to include community forums, workshops, networking events, and other community outreach activities. Harlem Pride is always held during the last full weekend of June. Many activities this year will be held virtually due to the COVID-19 pandemic.
be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.